Hey, I'm Stephen Povatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Anne was a young woman with a couple of small kids that she was trying to take care of. And she had let go of some opportunities in her life early on, and now all she could barely do was try to scrap together enough money to basically pay for the stuff that they had, and there was never a month where what they had was enough to make what they needed. She hung on for dear life as... Uh, with a, for a job at a, a hardware store, a small hardware store. And she worked every shift that she could get, even though it seemed like it got harder and harder. For a long time, things were great. Things seemed like at least she was uh, somewhere, somewhere she could work for a long time. And she enjoyed the other people that she worked with. But the hardware store was bought out by another uh, uh another company, and so she got uh, a new manager. And from day one, it just seemed like he hated her. For no reason. She tried to do everything that she could to make him happy. She tried to do everything that he asked her to, and he just seemed to resent her more and more and more. She started not getting that extra shift when she needed it. And a couple of months of that went by, and she became more and more financially distressed. At one point, um, he took her off the schedule completely for a week. And when she called to ask about it, he wouldn't pick up the phone. She waited until... The next week when she was on the schedule, but half as much as she could, uh, as she normally was on. And of course, by that time, her car payment was late and her car got towed, repoed. She said, hey, I really need these extra hours. If there's any extra shifts this coming week, I really, I really need them. And he said, I'll see what I can do. And then that Thursday, when the schedule came out, she had even less hours the next week. At one point, she came in, and she was trying to figure out how she was going to be able to make it all work. She came in to ask about it in one of the shifts that she normally would have had. And when Anne came to the store in the middle of the day there, she saw that the person working in her slot was his 17-year-old niece. And she started to put the pieces together. Next week, she was late catching a bus one day because she was trying to make it, and she didn't have her car. 
and the person that she would normally, uh, she was asking, she was trying to bum a ride to work, you know, and the person that she normally was trying to get that ride from didn't show up. So she had to take the bus. She ended up being uh, 20 minutes late. And when she showed up at work that day, he said, you're fired. Don't come back anymore. When Daniel was 12 years old, he loved going to school. And when he started in the seventh grade, he was so excited about the new place that he was going to school. He was so excited about all the different changes that come with being at that part of junior high, going to different classes. And in the first semester, everything was great. It was a whole new world, and it was a great thing. And some of his friends from elementary school were there with him, and he enjoyed going every day, loved going to school. But in the second semester, there was a kid in his first period class that out of nowhere, when he walked in on the first day, said, uh, call, called him a name as he came in and sat in front of him. This kid sat one seat beside behind Daniel, and he, all through that class, just kept shoving him with his textbook the whole time. Now, when he went to his second period class, Daniel was so relieved that that kid wasn't in there. But he was in third period and fourth and fifth and sixth. After a month of just being the target, Daniel didn't really like going to school anymore. He didn't really like getting up in the morning. His mom had a harder time day after day waking him up and getting him to go, and she couldn't figure out what was going on. This kid that had forever seemed like he just loved going, all of a sudden hadn't wanted to have nothing to do with it. Jonah is a hard book to understand if you've never been bullied. It has several things that make it difficult for us to read, difficult for us to grasp and to understand what's there. But I'm telling you, if one of our biggest blocks to reading Jonah is that we normally come to the scriptures from a position of power. People who live in abundance and with lots of things going for us. And if we come to the scriptures and always assume that we're in the part of the Israelites when we've only played in our lives the part of Pharaoh, then sometimes the scriptures will tell us their stories and they will go right over our heads and we won't perceive what they have to say. There are lots of places in the world today where Jonah is more readily heard than in these United States of America. Because if you only live in a place backed by the most powerful military that the world's ever seen, 
then this story may not be heard by you. <laughs> this story preaches differently in the peasant villages of the Ukraine. It preaches differently in the streets of Gaza. It preaches differently in places that have known themselves to be exploited and hurt by oppressive powers. Yet, if you can have the imagination to perceive what it means to be someone who has always been disempowered, powerless, the person that's afraid to show up for a bully, then this is a story that needs to be heard. What does Anne do when her old boss shows up at church one day? What does Daniel do when his schoolyard bully shows up in youth group one night? Jonah is difficult for us to read, partly because of we don't necessarily come to the text often on the, on the same side of the power differentials as Jonah does, but also there are other things about it. I mean, we don't even know. I, I went to Barnes & Noble the other day. I don't know which stack of shelves this book goes on, okay? You know what I mean by that? Like, what kind of book is the story of Jonah? Is it poetic thing? Is it a fantasy piece of fantasy literature? Does it belong in the history section? Or does it go where we normally have it shelved over there in the children's literature? This book has been done wrong in the way that it's been treated as the battleground for whether or not we read the Bible literally or not. A lot of people want to spend a lot of time arguing about, I don't know, man, a fish. He's like, I don't know if that could happen or not. Can it happen or not? And I tell you, you can believe in the literalness of the book of Jonah and really miss the point of it. This is a book that is asking certain questions that are not really bound by the literary, like the, the literary nature, whether it's actual fact or nothing like that. This book stands in the middle of the Book of the Twelve, the minor prophets as we call them, a set of prophetic works, but it's so different than all of those. It doesn't contain the poetic utterances uh, in the same way that those books do. They doesn't occur, it doesn't have a lot of words to say to the nations or to uh, even for Israel's leaders or anything like that. It's pretty unclear who it's written for. It seems to be a book whose central challenge is primarily directed at the prophet himself. Bound in this story. The story goes like this. It's an incredible story. In the opening act, Jonah is a prophet, and he's been sent to go to Nineveh. Now, that in itself is a word for us because uh, the, most of many of you know that in the historical 
in the in the history of Israel, Nineveh was one of the great villains, right? That city was one of their great oppressive enemies. Uh, the Assyrian Empire that rose to prominence in the 8th century, uh, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, was absolutely feared across the, across the, uh, the ancient Near East for the acts, the incredible violence that they would take out on the lesser kingdoms around. I mean, this is an empire that would go burn your city to the ground, put everybody's head on a stick outside the door as a sign that any, uh, for all the other cities, hey, this is what happens when you don't play well with us. The Assyrians were awful. And they were the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom, completely wiped them off the map, and almost did the same thing to the southern kingdom, the Judah, the nation of Judah. In fact, there's, a, there's an old piece of... Um, what do you call it, like uh, an old relief, a, a piece of the relic of the Assyrian Empire where the Assyrian king of the time brags about having locked up the king of Judah like a bird in the cage in the city of Jerusalem. And he doesn't really brag about what happened after that, but that's a whole different story. The Assyrians used their might and their power and their willingness to do violence to build an empire. In Israel, Judah were on the suffering side of that equation. So when Jonah is told, go to Nineveh, he is being told to go right to the heart of the bully's lair. To go speak to his great mortal enemy. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It doesn't seem like there's anything to really oppose there. The verse 3 of Jonah 1 says, But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, the other direction, from the presence of the Lord. Note that he's not just fleeing from Nineveh. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it says. He would rather go away from God than to go toward his enemy. Goes and he loads up in his boat. And there's part of the theme of Jonah in the, if you, if, when you read it carefully, uh, if and you're going to go back and do that this afternoon. Eager nods. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll notice that it's a, it's a story where God sends things often. He sends Jonah, but he also sends a storm. He sends a fish. He sends a worm. He's just sending stuff all the time. He sends a bush. Okay? He sends a storm, and the storm, you know, creates such a catastrophe for the sailors on the ship that Jonah is a part of, that they end up trying to decide what, who has done such wrong that, you know, this great storm would, would come upon them. What's the reason for this omen? And eventually Jonah fesses up. They throw him overboard. He's sinking down, and then he's rescued in the most gnomious way possible by a fish just swallowing him and holding him in his belly for three days. Living the good life. 
right? <laughs> Chapter 2 opens with Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, Hades, right? He, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billow passed over me, and I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? So this first part of this poem is all about being distant from God, right? I was as far away as possible, and at the bottom of the sea, I thought to myself, how will I ever get back to seeing the temple, the place of God's presence? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down. That phrase, I went down, by the way, the whole part of the story up until now is downward language. Jonah goes down to Tarshish. He goes, he goes down um, to Joppa to get on the ship, to get on the ship to go into Tarshish. He goes on board, which means he goes down into the ship, okay? And then he goes down into the sea. So it's down, 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 down. I can make that down sound because my voice is still jacked up from this cold. He's going down, 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 down. And here he says, I went down. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now notice that that part is, it hadn't happened yet. So part of this poem is Jonah saying, you have heard me, I hope. You have brought me up. Please do. It's the prayer of someone giving thanks for a salvation that they have not yet received. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice he comes back to the temple language, right? At first, he's talking about being so far away that he can never imagine. He's in the like belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea, and he's so far away from the glory of the temple that he can never imagine even getting back there. And yet somehow his prayer has come from there, from that low place, to God. His prayer is somehow breaking the bounds of his place of suffering. My prayer came to you into your holy temple, and those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, so scene one, Jonah told to go runs away, thrown into the sea. Scene two, or act two, Jonah, from the belly of the fish, prays this aspirational prayer 
of salvation and thanksgiving. In Act 3, Jonah goes finally to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh. So we've had calamity and now obedience. A crisis that leads to repentance. It says he went to, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now this is chapter 3 uh, in verse, we're in verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk around. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. And he cried out. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, in you may not think this, but that version, the English version of that, is actually much longer than the Hebrew original. In the Hebrew, it's only four words. Forty days, Nineveh overthrown. So Jonah gets a gold star for brevity. And I know some of you are going... You know, I could go to a church like that. <laughs> Remarkably, verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he had made a proclamation made in Nineveh. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they taste water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. I love the specificity of that, by the way. The great thing that Israel feared and Jonah uh, that Judah abhorred in Assyrian in the Assyrian Empire was their great violence. That's what they had used to call suffering to God's people and many others. And here it's particularly the violence that they are letting go of. And then in verse 9 it says this. This is the king of Nineveh talking still. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. A theological assertion, this is not. It's just a hope and a maybe and a perhaps. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said 
he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So in Act 3, we have Jonah's word to Nineveh. We have their response to it, their improbable response to it, their unlikely response to it. In the ancient world, the ancient people that read this story thought it was a lot more likely that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish than they would have thought it was likely that the Assyrians repented, by the way. All right, the question about this story is like literalness and all that. For the ancient people that read this thing, this was the part of the story that they thought was really unlikely. And yet, out of Jonah's resentful, sullen sermon, another crisis comes and another act of repentance. There's a confrontation with God that leads the people to give themselves over to what God wants. And that would be a mighty fine story. But the heart of the book of Jonah is in chapter 4. And chapter 4 opens like this. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. So this incredible story of repentance, of salvation from Nineveh, riles Jonah up. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. Jonah kicks a rock and says, ah, this is just like you, God. That's so the kind of thing that you would do. Jonah here is quoting one of Israel's most cherished theological moments. A moment where in the story of the Exodus, in a crisis where it was unsure whether God would go with Israel from Sinai and the place of their idolatry or not. And Moses has been giving a sign of God's presence to go with him. He asks to see God, and God reveals himself to him in Exodus 34 with these very words that Jonah quotes. The Lord, the Lord, a gracious God. As Jonas quotes it here, Gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. It's part of what Israel held closest about who God was in their relationship with him, in their relationship with him. 
Judah and Israel use these words all through the Old Testament. It shows up in the book of Numbers. It shows up a couple of different times in the book of Psalms as they praise God for who God has revealed himself to be to them. It shows up in the prophet Joel. It shows up in the book of Nehemiah. There are so many places in the Old Testament where people turn back to what they know about God to celebrate what God is doing in their lives. Here, Jonah's theology becomes a problem for his mission because he only thought that this worked within the boundaries of his own people. And when he had to consider what it meant for God to be that God in Assyria, he would rather change the way he thought about God than the way he thought about the world. This book is so provocative to me. It is so challenging for us in this moment, in this very moment in our world, where we go to no short length to demonize other people or the most trivial of beliefs and for sometimes the most important ones. Jonah asks us to take what we hold most closely about God and to allow that to change the way that we think about other people. Even other people that bad manager fired Ann. That bully that was relentless to Daniel. Or the people in your life who are you are so justified by their evil actions and intentions. And I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. Jonah doesn't deny the wrong of the Assyrians. He doesn't deny that they're evil. He doesn't deny that they had great blood on their hands and great violence and that they had done wrong. But even in the face of that, it affirms. It affirms that God cares for them. It says that even the most unlovable are loved and pursued by God, and that's for me and for my neighbor and for my enemy. How can it be? How can it be? ready to relent from punishing, and now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to be, for me to die than to live. 
Jonah doesn't want to live in a world in which his enemies are loved by God. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. He made a booth for himself, and he sat there, sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. And the Lord appointed a bush. I love that. I deem thee my emissary, O bush. <laughs> you know, Jonah can't be too high on his horse about who God sends to do his work in this story, right? I'm too good of a prophet to go to Assyria. You know, I send other things besides prophets, Jonah. Maybe instead of sending Jonah in the beginning, you should have just sent this bush to Assyria. God appointed a bush, and it came up over Jonah <laughs> to give shade over his head and to save him from his discomfort. Poor Jonah's hot, y'all. Poor Jonah's theology doesn't match up with God. Poor Beck. Yet God is gracious even for uncomfortable Jonah. And so Jonah was very happy about the bush. Finally, something he's happy about. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. And that attacked the bush. And so that it withered. I love that it doesn't just like nibble on the bush. It attacked it. It attacked the bush. So that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared or appointed or sent. Again, this is the same language. A sultry east wind. Man, the NRSV is really doing some translating work on this, okay? It's not just an east wind, but it's a hot east wind. It's sultry. I need to look that word up. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. And he said again, it is better for me to die than to live. It's too hot. It's getting hot in here. Extreme fire danger. Job, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, I'm angry enough. Angry enough to die. The Lord said, you are concerned about this bush for which you did not labor and you did not grow. And it came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? <laughs> Like in a crisis, a calamity, a confrontation. So where is the repentance? 
sense. One of my favorite things about this book is the way it ends. With a question from God. And no scene of Joseph finally coming to his senses, or Jonah finally coming to his senses. No scene where Jonah finally acknowledges the rightness of the way of God. The prophet remains unchanged. What I said at the beginning is not entirely true. This is not a story that is where the warning is directed entirely at the prophet. Here the word is directed to those of us who read the story. Jonah asked us to hold all those things that we say about God and to hold them up, and even as true as they are, the, the, the hard things that we acknowledge about who God is, And it says, if you believe that here, do you believe it anywhere? It asks, how far can our theology go and still work? In our classes, we're working through 1 John, and 1 John speaks, we've talked in, our, in the 40s group a lot, about, about the love of God and walking in the light and these big picture terms, which could really easily become abstractions, right? What does it mean to be someone that lives in the light or someone who loves? For Sean always comes back. It won't let us just live in the abstractions of those things, but it keeps leaning towards making them concrete making them flesh and blood. The love that we speak of God about has to be wrapped in the flesh and blood people that we meet. Our brothers and sisters, and maybe the Assyrians who live next door. Jonah wants us to wonder about this big guy who gives a great deliverance and a great salvation. Take that frame of understanding. Take that insight. Take that revelation. Take what you learn from God at Sinai or wherever else. And does that theology, do those things that you speak about God, are they still true in those places where you'd rather not be? Are they true in Tarshish? Are they true at the bottom of the sea? Are they true even in the home of your enemies and on the throne of the king that oppresses you? God comes to this story, and the story of Jonah ends with this question. Should I not be concerned. All of these stories that we're doing in this series are stories that bring a missional twist 
Last week we talked about Joseph, and the, the great challenge at the end of Joseph is not just, is Joseph going to be blessed, but will he be used to bless the nations? I think Jonah's missional twist is not just, will we go speak the word to the far corners of the world? But it's more that when we go to those four those those far corners of the world, will we allow that word that we speak not just to be something that changes others, but will we be open to allowing it finally to change us? Should God not be concerned? Shouldn't Jonah be? Should God not be concerned for the salvation of the bullies? Should God not be concerned for the fate of all that live under his creation? And if we finally reckon that God is indeed concerned, then the question is, are we? Are we shaped by the story of a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. Will that God have a people who are also gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from the vengeance that we would use our hands to employ. Let's pray together. God, repentance is your gift for those places that our hearts have not yet caught up to you. So shape us and change us. Send whatever storms and fish and bushes and worms it takes so that in the end you may send us as well as a people shaped by our love of you shaped by your mission at work within us. Use us to change the world. And if we are changed in the process, we give you glory and honor. We repent. We obey. May your name be ordered among us. Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you.